Well, turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We're going to read together uh, verses 5 through 10. Trust that these are very familiar, at least one or two verses that are probably more familiar with you than uh, the, the rest in the passage. Luke chapter 17, verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning that we are your children. We come to you, Lord, not only as your children, but also as your servants. And Lord, we look to you, devoted to you, knowing that Our lives belong to you. We pray that you would take your word as it is spoken. Lord, as we have read it together, may it be productive and alive in our hearts, and may it accomplish that which you purpose. We pray this, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, My Life is Not My Life. And I know that this is antithetical to many of the values that we hear circulating in the mainstream of America today, where really the essence of being an individual is that you lay claim to your own existence, that you lay claim to your own life, that your life is your life. And so we have defined freedom in the terms of me being free to do whatever I choose to do and even to the extent of being free to choose my own gender. These are discussions, of course, and debates that are prevalent within our society, and they begin with the fundamental assumption that my life belongs to me. But all of us, and we're going to see that this morning, were created for something else. It's noteworthy that whenever Christ gives this parable of the unworthy servant, which is what it's titled in my uh, Bible, and I'm reading the uh, English Standard Version, that he precedes the parable with these two verses about faith. Now, theologians have debated a long time where these two verses fall out in relation to the rest of the chapter. Of course, prior to the the first four verses, prior to the two we just read, verse 5 and 6, and then on to the parable, uh, they have to do with forgiveness, forgiving our neighbor, And some people feel like that um, verse 5 and 6 are more appropriately associated with those preceding verses. But there is, without being too academic, there is a distinct break there in our text that is introduced by the disciples or the apostles coming to Christ and asking a very understandable question. And that is, Lord, increase our faith. They no doubt had walked with Christ. They saw the miracles that he performed. They heard him time and time again teach on faith and the importance of faith in the life of a believer. And so it is not unreasonable that they should say, Lord, increase our faith. 
After all, faith, according to the Bible, is the means by which we please God. It is impossible to please God without faith. And so they come to him and they say, Lord, increase our faith. Then he gives them this very interesting comment, which has been misunderstood and I suggest perhaps misapplied uh, throughout history. He talks to them about having faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, there's one thing that you need to bear in mind, and that is that in the ancient Near East, there was no common standard by which to measure something that, that was infinitely small. And so if you wanted to talk about something that was almost negligibly small, you would compare it to that of a mustard seed. A mustard seed, of course, even today is a very small seed, probably perhaps one of the smallest. And Christ responds to the disciples' inquiry for increased faith by saying that if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, I think it's important, before we move on to the parable, that we remember and that we observe that Christ is teaching his disciples that the quantity of their faith is really not the issue here. It's not an issue of having more faith. They began from that platform, Lord, increase our faith. We don't have enough of it. He begins from the platform of negligible size and says, if you have faith that is so small that it's of negligible size, then you can say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the middle of the sea. What do the two have to do with each other? Well, a mulberry tree, by the way, and the actual Greek, I, I believe respectfully that the ESV has mistranslated the, the word mulberry tree there because the actual Greek says sycamine, sycamonas uh, or sycamine, uh, which there is a, a variety of tree in Israel, both in ancient times as well as today, known as the sycamine tree. And it is a breed between the mulberry tree and the fig tree. And it's a tree that was very common, and it's a tree that grows to be very large. In fact, I have a picture of it uh, that's up there on the screen. This is a sycamine tree. This is the tree, no doubt, that was in the vicinity when Christ was doing this, uh, this teaching that he says to his disciples, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, then you can say to this tree, be uprooted and be planted in the middle of the sea. Now there are uh, three distinct characteristics about a, a sycamine tree, one that is obvious when you see it, and that is that it grows to be very big. It's not like a date tree or a fig tree or, a, uh, or a, an olive tree that uh, grows to be 20, 15, 20 feet, but a sycamine tree can grow to be up to 50 feet tall. But the other characteristic, which you cannot see, is that a sycamine tree, more so than all the trees in the ancient Near East, had roots that went down very deep. In fact, they were so deep and complex that a sycamine tree could flourish where very few other trees could because their roots grew deep in the soil and they were able to tap into to water and to moisture uh, even in times of drought. And the third characteristic of a sycamine tree is that it looks like the fruit of a sycamine tree looks like that of a fig but when you taste it, you immediately know that it's not. Because a sycamine fruit is bitter, tough, and very difficult to chew. And so when Christ is teaching his disciples and they come to him saying, increase our faith, and he points to the sycamine tree and he says, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, then you can say to this tree, be uprooted, which they would have known the extensive root system that was there, and be planted in the middle of the sea, He's communicating something which I suggest has more to do with the object of their faith 
and a lifestyle of faith than it does the outcome of their faith. And many times we read this and we think, well, if I just had enough faith, then everything that seems so insurmountable in my life could be addressed and would disappear. But that is not what Christ is teaching. Instead, he's communicating these three truths. One, that what is unavoidably visible with faith could be moved out of sight. Two, that what is intricately attached to the earth and is so earthy would be relocated to the ocean, where it's not only hidden, but also, thirdly, where it's incapable of surviving. Why? Because its extensive root system does it no good. Even though it's immersed in the water, it's immersed in salt water. And so it would quickly die. And so what is Christ teaching his disciples? Well, I suggest, and we're going to look at this in, in just a minute, that his teaching here about faith and the mulberry tree or the sycamine tree is intricately related to the parable of the unworthy servant. Let's go ahead and look at that parable together. Point one there, which is the notes in your bulletin. He teaches his disciples about expectation of compensation. He does so by talking about a servant. Now, the English translation, servant, uh, again in the Greek, and um, has a, a more nuanced meaning, meaning the word that is used there is actually one who is a slave. The Greek word doulos, or, or, or servant, or slave. Uh, there were two different types of servants in ancient Israel. One was a servant who was a hired servant, someone that you would go out in the middle of the day or the beginning of the day or close to the end of the day and you would hire them for a particular wage and they would come home and do a specific task and once that task was completed, then you would compensate them. And then there was another servant, an indentured servant or somebody who was a slave who did not have the luxury of owning their time and therefore should not have expected compensation when the task was complete. And this is ultimately the type of servant that Christ is addressing here. He says, there is a none of you. In fact, that's why he paints the, the, uh, the parable. He asks this question, which is uh, obviously a very preposterous one to those who are listening. He says, will any of you who has a servant, not the hired servant, but the indentured servant, the servant who is a slave, who is plowing or keeping sheep, Say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table. And the implication there is no. It would be preposterous. It would be ridiculous to think that your servant, whose time is not his, therefore he has no reason to expect to be compensated when he's done something that you've asked him to do, that the servant should come in and say, well, Lord, I've tended to your sheep, I've plowed your field, now give me what is rightfully mine. Christ informs his disciples from the beginning that the relationship between a master and a servant or slave is one in which the slave has no claim on freedom or independence. The question that he asks here, it's an interesting one because it addresses the very expectation that a servant might have and how the master responds to that expectation. To expect compensation as soon as the task is completed is to say, Lord, my time needs to be redeemed. Somehow my time belongs to me. And by spending it in this activity that you've asked me to do, I need to be compensated for it. The idea, in fact, that's the essence of compensation. That's the essence of a fair wage. 
The idea that you as an individual, time is really all you have. And when you give your time to an employer and you receive a paycheck, he's compensating you not only for the work that you do, but also for the time that you spent doing that work that you could have been doing something else. That's the relationship between a master and a hired hand, or a master and a hired servant. Now, I make that point because many of us as believers often live our Christian life as if we are hired hands instead of servants or slaves to Christ. What do I mean by that? We often live our life with the expectation that we should be compensated. That at the end of the day, somehow, what God has entrusted to us, our time, our energy, our health, our resources, our finances, all belong to us. But that's not the expectation that Christ is painting here in Scripture. He's saying, I am the master. And he makes the point very clear that there's no wiggle room for us to redefine our position. He is the master, and we, as his disciples, are the slave. We are the servant. So the difference between the servant who, who works for a salary, the servant who works for compensation, who expects compensation for a job well done, and the servant who is a slave who realizes that he does not have time that is his own, but rather his time belongs to his master, the difference is in their expectation of compensation how they feel God should be treating them, or in this case, how they feel this, the master should be treating them. The slave knows that he is devoted to his Lord and master to the point of disregarding his own interests. In other words, time is not his interest. What is his interest is what his master asks him to do. So when he's out in the field and he's tending to the flock or he is a plowing and he comes in and he's tired and he's worked hard, he doesn't expect his master to say, well, you've been out laboring all day. Come sit down to meet and I'll prepare you supper. No, that's not the expectation of the servant, of the slave. The expectation is one where he looks to his master and whatever his master asks him to do, he is submissive to the will of his master. So to thank the servant, and you have to have a sense here of what Christ is, is, is getting at when, when he implies that somehow the servant requires or deserves compensation, to thank the servant would have been an outright validation that the servant had, come, had some claim over his time. And so the master instead has the expectation, and the servant does as well, that what I ask you to do, you do it. Not because you want to be compensated for the first task before I ask you something else, but rather because you know that your responsibility is to the master. Proverbs 27, 21 says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And a man is tested by his praise, by his reward, by his compensation. Praise, compensation has a way of purifying the heart because it reveals to us how truly we see ourselves in light of eternity. Do we see ourselves as being our own? Do we see ourselves as having a right, a claim over our time, over our lives, over our existence? Or do we see our lives as belonging to the master, belonging to Christ? If we see our lives as belonging to to ourselves, as our own, 
our life as mine, we will expect compensation. We could have been doing something else instead of serving the master. But if we see ourselves as the servant, the slave to the master, that we belong to Christ, we do not look for compensation, but obedience itself is organic to who we are. It's not a means to an end, it's an end in itself. That's why Christ could say rather emphatically, if you love me, keep my commandments. And oftentimes we approach our faith the other way around, that if we keep the commandments, it will increase our love for him. But Christ says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Have uh, any of you watched the PBS miniseries lately on Podark? I don't know if it's gathered much steam or not, but um, my wife and I are rather, well, I guess we're geeks in that way and that we like to watch PBS miniseries. There's one particular one on Podark, and, and since many of you are not familiar with it, I'll go ahead and tell you the story is about a man named Ross Podark, who is a hereditary member of the landed gentry in, in England, um, in Cornwall, England, back in the late 18th century. And Ross Podark, his father recently deceased, and he left the estate that Ross is inheriting in disarray, and basically Ross is, is, is um, he has all these debts from the estate, the estate's not able to produce anything, there's two mines on the estate, uh, iron ore mines, and the mines are shut down, so uh, he's not able to have a way of, in, of generating income. But when he's in the process of putting his own blood, sweat, and tears into the mines and into the estate to try to get, get it back up and running, uh, he hires a young lady who is an outcast. Her name is Demelza. And she is rough. She's obviously, you can tell from her speech, from the wrong side of town. He is a landed gentry. He's a gentleman. Um, and she is, she is the furthest thing from a lady. He hires her to be his kitchen maid. And he notices over a period of time that she's very devout to her tasks, that she doesn't complain, she doesn't whine. In fact, she does what she's asked, and then some. She goes around looking for things to do. And he commends her for it, and he actually approaches her one day, and he says, listen, I know that you may think you're of greater value in the house of your father, so I just want you to know that even though I've hired you, you're free to go home if you want to. And the young lady tells him, this is where I belong. I enjoy serving you. I enjoy being your servant. I enjoy being here in the estate. This is where I belong. Well, as time passes, as you may assume, Ross falls in love with this young lady and marries her. And in the process of marrying her, of course, she's just astounded. She, she didn't expect it. She didn't see it coming. And she's amazed that this gentleman could possibly love her who was from the lower class of society. And there's one episode in particular after he falls in love with her and, and marries her and after the wedding that she makes it clear to him that even though she loved him more than life itself, that she would have been just as content being his servant as she was being his wife. And this, of course, blows him away because she found joy in serving him. Now, in a sense, I believe that the heart of Demelza is the heart that Christ is referencing here in the story, in this parable. She served not because she had hopes of being compensated or could let alone dream that one day she would be the lady of the manor or the governess of the estate, but she served because she did not consider her time her time. She served out of devotion and love to her master. 
This brings me to the second point, which is that compensation is promised for those who first serve. Now, as I mentioned, compensation reveals to us the intents of our heart, and our expectation of compensation shows us whether or not we see ourselves as a slave, as an indentured servant, or a hired hand. However, the story tells us that compensation does occur. It's not that compensation is not happening. Compensation does occur, but it occurs after we have first served. That's why Christ in verse 8 says that the master says to his servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Notice that there are two things that the master requires of the servant prior to the servant being compensated. One, the servant was told to dress properly. If you're reading the King, King James Version, it says, gird thyself this would have entailed possibly rolling up his sleeves, maybe even his robe, exposing some flesh, exposing his legs, exposing his arms, which in that culture would have been humiliating because if you're a lord or a gentleman or somebody who has servants, you don't, you don't expose your ankles, you don't expose your wrists. But the master is here telling the servant to dress properly and serve me and then you will be compensated. Now, it's very important that we see the difference between the compensation the master grants to the servant and the compensation the servant might demand or expect had he been a hired hand. Because the way the servant is compensated as a slave is not as sustenance earned, is not as a result of his time well spent or his labor well executed or service well rendered, but rather it is provision that is freely given. That's the difference. Where the master says, first dress and serve me, and then afterwards, while I eat and drink, afterward you will eat and drink. And that was the expectation. That you would be fed from the master's table after the master ate to his fill. That it would not be a reward for your labor, but rather that it would be provision that was graciously given because even as a slave, you were living under his roof and within his household. So we see here this picture, a contrast between one who sees their time as their own and therefore they should be compensated for it and the slave or the servant who has no allegiance, no claim over what might be considered his, but rather is completely devoted to his master. And the third point that I want to make here is that it's something that often we don't want to admit, and it may offend some of you, and so if, if it does, good. Um, and that is that we were all created for servitude. We were all created to be servants. The question becomes, whom are we serving? At the very end of the parable, Christ makes this statement, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what is our duty. In other words, he quickly informs his disciples and all of us what role we play in the story. And we do not have the luxury of redefining our position. We are servants, slaves, not the hired kind, the indentured kind. Slaves that have been welcomed into the household of Christ 
And I would even press it further to say that we have become sons, heirs to God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. But the point that Christ is here making in the parable is that we were created for servitude and we will inevitably be servants our entire lives, even into eternity. It's inevitable. Regardless of the lie of our culture, regardless of the voice of our society that say, says that freedom is the ultimate means, is the ultimate achievement of humanity, all of us will inevitably be slaves. We will either be a slave to ourself, to society, or to Christ. We will either be a slave to the standard that is imposed on us by the world, a standard that says that what is right for me is right for me, and what is right for you is right for you. Therefore, how I spend my time is my business, how you spend your time is your business. Or we will become a servant or slave to Christ, understanding that all we have is his. That my life is not my life. Freedom. The way that it is defined within our society is an illusion. It's not a part of our reality. And you don't have to look far to see that explicated, explained, demonstrated. Christ says when we have obeyed, when we are slaves to him, we should not render service expecting compensation, but rather we should see our lives lived before him and sacrifice and love to him as why we were created, as what we were created to do. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make an analogy which may be a little ridiculous, but I hope gets the point. Imagine the presumptuousness of your cell phone, your iPhone, your smartphone, if it could talk, which I guess it can in a way, Siri. Imagine the presumptuousness of your cell phone if it were to say to you, I placed a call, now buy me an OtterBox. It's ridiculous because the phone functions best when it does what it was designed for. You and I were created, were designed to serve God. Not to lay claim on any ounce of our strength, any resource that we might have, any goodness we think we bring to the table, nor on any time that we feel we have in our possession. Because our life is not our life, it belongs to God. Now, what does all this have to do with faith in trees being planted in the ocean? Everything. Because when we believe that Christ is who he says he is, when we believe that he is the Lord of all, then we know that it is not about the size of our faith, nor is it about us at all. See, the disciples had the wrong object in mind. It wasn't the quantity of their faith, it's the object of their faith that Christ was getting at. And once they moved the mountain, once that gigantic obstacle that's so attached to earth that its roots grow deep is out of the way, then they would be able to see this truth. It is about him. And I don't know about you, but the most significant tree growing in my life is my own sense of entitlement. My own sense of deservedness. My sense of entitlement to money, to resources, to time, to vocation. 
And yes, for many of us, our own righteousness. Have I not been good enough? I'm better than the next man. So at the heart of what Christ is here teaching through this parable is the heart of the gospel. That there's nothing that we can lay hold to. Our time, our resources, resources, our goodness, our righteousness, nothing that we can bring to him and say, it's mine, compensate me for it. But rather we come empty-handed as a servant, sowed into slavery, purchased by his blood, belonging to him, a master that loves us, that cares for us, that provides for us, not because we deserve it, not because it's our compensation, but because it is provision freely given. He invites us to his table. He invites us to dine. He invites us to joy of the banquet that he has set before us. How are you dining? Are you doing it looking at this as compensation? Or are you doing it looking at it as gracious provision? When my sense of entitlement is the focal point of my worldview, the means through which I look at all of the world, then faith becomes a consumable and Christ becomes a magician. We look at the first two verses of our text and we say, if I just had enough faith, I could speak to the mountains, the the trees in my life and command them to move. And it becomes about what we could do with faith instead of about what God has done through grace. The focal point of our worldview must be the fact that we have brought nothing into the world and we shall take nothing out. But rather that we must surrender to Christ and to him alone. When Christ and he alone has dominion over my life and is the focal point of my worldview, I will thrive on living a life of obedience to him. I will thrive as Demelza and enjoy simply being his servant knowing also that he has wed me and that I am his bride. So, in closing and also by way of application, do you want to know how much of your focal point is about you? Do you want to know how much of your focal point, the the means by which you view all of reality, is influenced by your sense of you being a hired hand instead of a slave-servant? Well, let me ask you, let me ask us, me included, do we become angry when someone cuts us off in traffic? Do you rage with a hot, holy fire of indignation when someone has performed an injustice against you? God forbid they talk to me that way. God forbid they do that to me. Or do you feel satisfied and meaningful to God when someone praises your labor? Now, there's a healthy role of affirmation, and please don't hear what I'm not saying. But at the essence of our identity as Christians is the understanding that we are not our own. My life is not mine. As the adage says, the cliche says, which is true, we perform for an audience of one. That is Christ. Our lives are not our own. They belong to him. He is our master. He is our Savior. And with faith that is negligibly small, which even faith itself is a gift of his grace, we can look to him and trust in him and his goodness for everything that we have need of. 
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are ever grateful to you for your grace, ever grateful to you for your provision, ever grateful that as our master, Lord, we look to you and we know that we do not lay claim to anything in this life. But Lord, we may know that this morning as we've heard your word spoken and declared, we may know it cerebrally. Help us to know it with our hearts and may it transform our lives throughout this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.